with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start the show, uh, something new. We used to carry front burner from CBC News, but now it's uh, a brand new podcast here in Prince George, The Ram and Stag Show. Hello. Today I'm speaking with Ellis Ross, member of the Legislative Assembly for Skeena. Mr. Ross has just announced his intentions to seek the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. He's a former chief counselor of the Highs of First Nation, a recipient of the Order of British Columbia, and a proud father as well as grandfather. Mr. Ross, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, you've decided to campaign for the leadership of the B.C. Liberals. Why is that? Well, mainly because it's an involvement. Plus, I'm really concerned about where BC is heading in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I've always had a concern because basically whatever happens there politically or government-wise actually affects people. And that's where my interest really lies in making sure that people are looked after and have a good future. I think that so much of that must stem from your own time and everything that you experienced there. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I'm not really a career politician. I've actually got into politics in 2003, uh, mainly to, to kind of help support my junior girls basketball team, only to find out that uh, my band council was broke. They had no money. And so in getting onto council, I, I started to understand what it truly meant to have good governance and actually what that provides for people if it's done correctly. Then when I joined the legislature, uh, I got a good perspective on uh, BC politics as well as BC governance. But, uh, but the the notion has never uh, went away that uh, it's got to be done for the benefit of people. I think that's something that's been missing in, in the conversations we've had, both in this country and elsewhere in the world, and even in our province, that, you know, it's the constituents, it's the people at the ground floor who need to feel like their leaders are listening to them and trying to take care of them. What What do you think is happening there? Why do people feel so disconnected from their leadership everywhere? Well, from what I've witnessed in the last three years, there's an incredible amount of politics. I mean, even our governments, they, they haven't really said anything about my attitudes towards trying to make life better. They're just trying to bring me down. They're trying to misrepresent what I said last year or two years ago. Uh, but I haven't really heard anything uh, from anybody talking about why I really do this in the first place. So I think it's an incredible amount of politics, rhetoric, and narratives from people that have no interest in uh, basically looking after the, the average citizen. Is that what motivated you to join your, your band's own council and to try and make things better for your own people? Well, initially, uh, but it took me a good, you know, six months to a year to realize the true nature of, of what an Indian Act council was going through. And it took me a, a bit longer to realize that, that I was in a position to actually affect change. But it meant dramatic change. And it meant me walking away from the rhetoric that I had learned before and the false narratives I had learned before. And that, that's what I see right now in BC politics is that everyone's talking about all these big issues. But none of it really affects the average citizen who just wants to pay off their mortgage, wants to buy a house, wants to pay their rent bill, you know, wants to put food on the table. None of that applies to that. So I, I, my, my interest is basically just look, get away from the politics and actually get back to true governance. That true governance, it's its something that actually has a long legacy in British Columbia. On both the right and the left, uh, people who have tried to make things better for British Columbians. What, what do you think happened along the way there? Why, why does it seem like the leadership isn't as invested anymore in 
what happens on the ground floor in BC? I don't know, but but you know, it's, it's a similar to what I experienced when I became uh, uh, on the chief council for my small little band. You got these high level conversations, but the the, the real issues are, are what's affecting people on the ground, and it, it takes. It takes a real bold vision and statement to say, I'm not going to talk about those big high-level politics that actually gets everybody excited. I'm going to see what I can do to actually address poverty, people from going to prison. I'm going to see what I can do to address uh, kids going to government care. And it's it's not going to be a happy conversation. It's not going to be a happy journey. But the end result will, will pay off, you know, 10 times over if we do it right. And it's actually a discipline, but it, it's, you know, it, it's getting away from the politics. The distraction politics is what uh, we call it up here, in my family anyway. Distraction politics. It does It does seem that way with so many things. Uh, I find that, especially when it comes to development or questions around the Indian Act, I mean, my, I am myself a status First Nation person. I have never really agreed with the consensus narrative around that or any of the ideas around victimhood. I'm not saying bad things didn't happen. But the problem is, how do we move forward from that? And it seems like a lot of people are making money off of kind of keeping the narrative the same. Do you find that as well? Oh, yeah. And in fact, when I got on to uh, the chief and council, our council used to say that First Nations issues are a multi-billion dollar industry in Canada. Whether you talk about the courts, uh, the Indian Act, politics, who makes a living for quite a few people. And it, this is, is typical of what happens when uh, people truly don't understand, you know, the real issues. And what the real solutions could be. And so that, that's what I'm seeing here in BC in terms of uh, the distraction politics. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, you know, how do we rebuild our economy? How do we rebuild our society? How do we rebuild our communities and our families that have been, you know, basically separated artificially? It, it's going to take a huge discipline to bring that all back and make us even a stronger province than we were three years ago. Let's let's go through just a brief history lesson, again, into your own background there, especially as it has to do with First Nations issues and development. Your your nation was part of landmark decisions, part of landmark signatories to the LNG project that's happening. I know that uh, you have, have been in the news uh, having to fight your corner on why you guys made that decision and, of course, how important it was to, to your people. What what do you find as the opposition there? Why why is the narrative so hard to counter? Because you know it's it's just not sexy enough. You know I, I've seen these politicians get on get on the bandwagon of talking about the high level politics facing First Nations, and yet none of them truly understand what a First Nation is going through. I mean I've, I've been in the legislature and I've put up my uh, opinion in terms of First Nations engaging with the economy, for example, and why. And I have not gotten one single response from the legislature. You, you talk about the legislature, there's 87 MLAs there, and a number of them cite their First Nations background and their heritage. And yet I'm getting up here and, I, and I'm giving a narrative that's actually contradicting what they're, they're, the legislature is trying to do, and I get no feedback. I get no pushback. I mean, because I've lived this experience on reserve. I lived it. I, I actually reviewed the Indian Act issues. I reviewed rights and title, and I re- reviewed economic development in that context, not only from the context of First Nations, but economic development in terms of what it does to a region, what it does to a province. And that, you know, that just doesn't make the news. You know, in terms of what we did up here in uh, Kitimat, for example, for the LNG industry, that's a province-changing initiative. Change the, the, the face of BC and it, it, it could sustain us for the next 20, 30, 40 years. You know, if we can encourage uh, investment to come back into BC, you know, and create a framework for, for a healthy economy, it could. But uh, the politics is actually, you know, working against that. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It seems that if, if you blockade something or if you get in front of a, tr- a railroad track or you're in front of the legislature making a lot of noise, you'll get a lot of attention. But if you just sign a document that might actually benefit 
benefit some people. Somehow uh, no reporters show up, hey? Or say if a a 22-year-old First Nations girl gets a mortgage off-reserve in her own right with no help from the Indian Act, no help from the bank council, you know, she's just got a job, got a good credit rating, and she buys a house. That is an incredible story. And that's where I really envision First Nations going in terms of uh, independence at the leadership level, at the individual level. And it just makes BC a stronger place. Uh, but that just doesn't make news. And that and that story is uh, replaying itself all over up here in Kitimat and Terrace and the surrounding region now. And it's because, you know, that uh, success breeds success. The LNG industry opened up that opportunity. The modernization of the aluminum smelter opened up that opportunity. But, it, uh, you know, if you want to take advantage of something like this, you've really got to walk away from the politics and uh, political stances and, you know, keep an open mind to what's possible. Bridging that a little bit, I think I think maybe this is exactly where people feel that disconnect. It seems like, again, people who are agitating or the, the victim mentality that gets pervaded in some places in Canada, a lot of it is coming out of, say, the mouths of academics and people in Toronto or in Vancouver uh, who have never been uh, into your part of the world or or anywhere outside of the bubble, uh, what what do they need to fundamentally understand to, to, to take away from, from the understanding they have right now or the false understanding they have right now about First Nations issues and start to understand the real, the real issues when it comes to social issues on reserves and development and how that might alleviate some of those issues? Well, you can't tell me that these people don't know the issues. I mean, it, it's been in the media for the last 30 years. I mean, the, the statistics are out there uh, and they're horrible statistics, you know, talking about uh, prison rates, uh, talking about uh, substance abuse, talking about children in care, talking about suicide rates. And the only difference that I bring to the table is that, that you know, I lived it and I'm sur- I was surrounded by it my entire life. I'm still living in a reserve right now. But if, if you apply this to what BC is facing now, I mean, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're uh, an immigrant or a first-generation Canadian or fifth-generation Canadian. We're all going through the same thing now. We're all facing these mental issues. You know, we're all getting stressed. You know, we're all talking about what it means to have a job in our community. Uh, but we're getting distracted by the political conversations that really got nothing to do, you know, with, with the idea that I want to get a mortgage. I want my kids to get a mortgage here so they can grow up next to me. You know, I want my grandkids close to me. To do that, you've got to talk about the realities of what's going on around you and what actually provides that. And this, this is what turns me off about politics. I mean, if, if a lot of people are talking now about sustainable economy and bringing back manufacturing and uh, talking about value-added products. Yeah, okay, let's have that conversation because that's that's my background. That's what I've talked about for the last 16 years. And I know there's a way to do it, uh, but you've got to get away from the idea that you know the, the politician is going to bring something else up with you to take you away from that conversation, which is really you know fundamental to our strong communities and our strong province. I think that's a brilliant way to move forward because ultimately, regardless of, of how many seats are accorded to any party, uh, they have to represent all British Columbians. Coming back to those economic issues you mentioned before, the value added, the things that you understand that people always talk about, but they don't seem to have a plan. Where where do we go then? What what does value added look like in BC? It's been a word bandied about for years. What does it mean uh, in a concrete way? Well, the best example I can come up with is... Uh you know, the Olfins project out of Prince George. And I've heard about this idea for 15 years and just didn't quite understand the mechanics of it. Uh, existing natural gas pipeline in BC. And the idea is uh, you, you take out some of the byproducts in that pipeline and then therefore you're sending a, a, a more pure, clean product to Asia. But the product you take out, you actually turn into high-grade plastics. And if Boeing, you know, the aeronautical uh, company, is actually interested in this concept coming out of Prince George, 
And I think we're onto something. And if, if you start to build this this idea of taking some some product out of a pipeline and actually making a product in Prince George or Kitimat or Northern BC or Vancouver, then actually what you're doing is actually building a framework for a manufacturing economy. The other, the other one quite surprised me, and you know British Columbians have got to be thanked for this. You know, British Columbia is one of the only provinces in Western BC, if not Western Canada, if not Canada, that recycles tires to the tune of five million a year. And it the, the it's such a great idea that, uh, you know, we can't keep up with the supply. So we actually import tires from Alberta, Yukon, and the United States, which is great. I love this. And British Commons, you got to pack your back, it sells on the back for this. But there's something missing when we turn this tire into mulch. Uh, we send that mulch to manufacturing facilities in the United States, for example. And they make runners or running shoes, and they sell, sell them back to us. Well, you know what? There, there's, there's investors and, and proponents that would love to actually build something in BC to take advantage of that mulch. I mean, these these are questions that don't have the political backing right now. And because they're not politically correct, well, I've been known not to be politically correct. And it's, it's just, okay, how do we do this? Where do we go? Well, first we need to, to instill the com, uh, investor confidence back in BC. And that's just not there right now. And this was happening long before COVID came along. And so these little ideas that are coming up, and there's investors willing to put their name there and actually explore. Government has got to send the signals to say, yes, we'll back you. And this is what this is my background. This is all I did for 15 years. That's part one of this week's Ram and Stag. We'll have part two in a moment here on After 9. Hi, this is The Wolfman. Few entertainment genres have captured our imagination and been as successful as the good old-fashioned musical. From their vaudevillian roots to today's blockbusters, musicals have provided generations with a stream of memorable productions, show-stopping performances, and larger-than-life personalities. Join me for a unique adventure as we trip the light fantastic across more than a century of musical theater, from Broadway to the West End and all points in between. On with the show, Sunday afternoons at 2, only on Boomer Radio 93. Once again this year, the Community Volunteer Income Tax Program will be helping local seniors prepare their 2020 income tax return. The program will run Tuesdays and Thursdays in March and April from 9 to 11 and is by appointment only. You must be over 55 to qualify for the program and have a simple tax situation. Volunteers do not keep records from year to year, so you must inform them of any deductions or changes on your return. To book an appointment with the Community Volunteer Income Tax Program, call the Seniors Resource Center at 250-564-5888. A forest-focused conservation group in northern B.C. has released both the first province-wide cumulative impacts map and the first visual account of our last remaining old-growth forests. The interactive mapping project, dubbed Seeing Red, shows where there are opportunities to conserve primary forests, as well as where management for restoration or production of wood products are a better option. Both maps were created using data from the provincial and federal governments. For more information on these impact maps, visit conservationnorth.org. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy today with a 60% chance of flurries. Wind from the southwest at 30 gusting to 50 and a high of zero. Clearing tonight, wind from the northwest at 20 gusting to 40, becoming light near midnight, a low of minus 12 with a wind chill to minus 15. Cloudy on Saturday with snow beginning late in the afternoon. Wind from the south at 30 gusting to 50 near noon and a high of zero. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now part two of this week's Ram and Stag show. I've read some of your bio. It said that you did salvage logging. Um, There's also a taxi cab company in there. You're a self-made man. What 
it, was that what directly led you into uh, your time with the Heisler Nation as a counselor as well as uh, into your spot as an MLA? And is that the experience you took with you? When there was absolutely no jobs in Kitimat, there was nothing. And so me and my brothers, I was lucky. My brother, my oldest brother, was, was a journeyman carpenter. And he took me and, and taught me a lot of things about the construction industry. We went into business together with uh, hand logging. And uh, we did it, but it was just mainly just trying to stay afloat. And so when I, when I got older and I got into the, the, the political arena, you know, I, I went with the idea that there was a number of uh, leaders out there that were fighting for a guy like me, you know, to, to, to kind of make sure that I had a future, that I could get a job in my hometown. And in reality... I, I saw the difficulty that came with it. Mainly, you know, there was bigger issues on the table, and there was that, that actually distracted you from it. There was also narratives that actually, you know, took you away from building an economy. And so, by the time I became chief counselor, I understood all this, and I just took all that stuff away and just said, "No, we're going to focus on the economy, and the benefit is going to go to the people of the region. And when the region succeeds, you're going to see better services. You're going to see more doctors move in, more nurses move in, you know, and likewise. So it, it was kind of like a bigger picture thing that I was." looking at if you build it they will come it's it's an old rule but it seems again to have been forgotten everything seems to be about advertising what's politically correct how to properly market things to people uh the questions of integrity and just leading leading towards a better future again it it seems to be missing everywhere in the world even here in bc i'm i'm thankful that you're mentioning that Uh, what what then, if we're if we're looking at this way forward, if we're looking at how we're going to get uh, ahead as a province, what's what's that first thing then on on the agenda? You've, you've achieved the leadership, you've won a majority in in the legislature. What what are your first items on on the agenda? Well, you know, I, the thing about it is that the, what I've learned is working with the, the, my colleagues is there's a tremendous amount of skill and education and experience you know, that I can tap into. And there's a lot of issues facing BC. And if anybody tells you that they have all the answers, they're lying. Nobody has all the answers. The benefit that I had is that when I went into the legislature, I had a, a large number of colleagues that could educate me, not only on a process, you know, but, but some of the areas I had no idea existed. And that, that that's a good thing about working within a party in the legislature. Uh, everything I've really done in my life wasn't on my own. You know, I came up with some concepts, I came up with some ideas and visions, but I really need other people to fill out that vision. And so when I go into a situation like this, I really rely on a lot of different people to actually make, you know, the vision happen and work out. And that includes staff, that includes lawyers, that includes consultants, that includes uh, fellow MLAs, and, and it's, it's the best way to actually address an issue to make sure that you've covered, you know, all the bases. And so I've, I've said this before that, uh, you know, to bring back BC, number one, you get rid of the politics. Uh, but number two, I really strongly equate a strong society and a strong province with a strong economy because I've lived through the opposite. And so I'll be relying on a lot of different uh, people to actually fill in the blanks for me. British Columbians have always loved uh, fighters. I know that you are a strong advocate for both both your region, but also for BC in general. I, I saw that uh, interview that, or that debate that you had on CTV with, I believe it was Pam Palmetto or whatever her name was. Uh, I think you did a great job. Uh, and I think British Columbians enjoy that. Uh, people might caution you sometimes about trying to be more politically correct. What What do you say to those people? Uh, you know, I try. <laughs> I try. But, you know, and you, know my, you know, my biggest critic uh, in, in terms of that, that approach is my wife. Ah, she absolutely hates my temper, and, and I think about that a lot of times when I'm when I'm you know getting hot under the collar. And she doesn't you know she doesn't pull punches at me. She just she won't even look at some of the interviews that I've done 
where you know she she knows I'm getting angry, and so I, I try to keep that in mind. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm looking at, at my experience I lived, and I'm at the end of the day also, I, you know, I, I I just hate to see people suffer, and and it feels even worse when you can't help. How do you do uh, an initiative that helps a broad range of people? And I I think, and I've said this before, is that uh, the only thing missing that I've seen from the the economic development plans from other groups is that okay, we know the economy economy, a strong economy is going to help the majority of people. That's great. But I've also seen and I've also uh, worked it through where a strong economy can help those that are most disadvantaged or just need a, a you know, a helping hand. And I, that's that's one of the measurements I use when I'm, when I'm looking at uh, how to build up a strong economy for the sake of a strong society. Perhaps, perhaps that's one place that we can explore a little bit. What the party needs to look like and everything else, that's that's a debate for another time. But it is it is a bare fact that a lot of the ridings that were in the suburban areas were lost in this most recent election. How how are we gonna make sure that the interior of the province and the urban areas of the province down to the south and and to the west, how are we gonna keep those things connected? How are we gonna make sure we're all on the same team when sometimes it seems like there's such a disparate vision between those places for British Columbia? The people in Vancouver, you know, it's, it's becoming pretty obvious what the people in Vancouver think. It's uh, especially the younger people. I mean, they're, they're, there's a fear that they'll never own a house in the places they grew up, whether it be Surrey or or Coquitlam. And, uh, and you know, I, I got to agree. You no, know, rural people have the same fears, whether or not that we'll ever own a house. Uh, I see Vancouver people talking about the environment. You know, good. That's where I come from. You know, that's where I got my start. So contrary to popular belief, I did not come out, you know, blazing with uh, the, the economy. I actually came out, you know, fighting for environmental conditions. It was helping the economy and helping uh, people get a job was the last thing on my mind. It was, uh, and so I got a grounding in environmental assessment, uh, environmental permitting. Uh, I started to understand where the real impacts were. And that's that's how I see Vancouverans. I mean, when people started talking about plastic straws, banning plastic straws, uh, I, I know that got a lot of people that ridiculed it. And I didn't think it was such a bad thing. I thought it was, you know, that's a conversation that we should take even further. Uh, we, we should actually explore alternative products. Uh, we should explore biodegradable plastics. Uh, we should explore water quality in terms of sewage because that's what I had done for 15 years. It's actually the basis of our, our economic plan here in Kitimat. And so uh, I understand all this in, in terms of what the Vancouverites, but, uh, you know, one of the other issues that we're starting to have in common with Vancouverites as well is how Vancouverites are not feeling safe. And I'm not, I've been trying to deal with this in terrorists for the last couple of years too. And it's, uh, I, I know it's a society issue, uh, but, but at some point, you know, people are going to have to come to the grips of reality of citizens, you know, need to feel safe, especially in a society like BC. And it's, I grew up around that and I have some strong opinions, but I would love to hear the opinions of more people on that. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, we look at the cost of housing, we look at the cost of, of everything. It's, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up. And people feel very, they feel very lost. And, and, what what are they going to do about it? Even here in, in my hometown of Prince George, I remember some of the prices I see now for things that are serious fixer-uppers, those are the prices that were, uh, that was a doctor's house 20 years ago. What do we need to look at, if, if, if that's even happening that far away from Vancouver, what is that whole BC approach to making BC life more affordable and, and making sure there's a better future for British Columbians? Well, this is happening all over the, the, the world, basically, in terms of attractive places where people want to buy real estate. And, it, you know, it comes down to supply. How much supply do you have, you know, to, to address, you know, how many people want to actually buy a house and live in, in urban Vancouver? But it also has to do with 
more cooper- cooperation uh, at the municipal level, at the provincial level. I think there's a, there's a place for it in terms of uh, the federal government getting involved. Uh, there's a number of different ways you can do this, but it, it, it's not going to do any good with just you know sitting back and blaming each other. I look at the NDP, they they, they, they blamed the, the, the Liberals for housing affordability. Well, housing affordability has actually gone up in the last three years. It, it's not something that a politician can just you know, wave a magic wand and fix. There's a number of different factors that have to go into that. And it, it's, it, it means sitting down with a number of like real estate people, sitting down with them, asking their opinion, sitting down with a, with a, a 25, a 26-year-old person that, that you know, is trying to look for a house and, and understanding, okay, what's, what are the issues you're facing? I mean, but, but the high-level politics, that is not the place to start. It's got to be on the ground level to understand these issues and the true nature of, of what we're facing. No more distraction politics. I like it. Uh, Mr. Ross, uh, is there a way that people can connect with you as you journey in this leadership uh, race? Uh, how, how do people get involved and how do people become part of, uh, of this movement you're trying to create? Well, currently I'm on, on Facebook and then we're going to start to put together a lot of different lists in terms of how to contact us by phone and by email and uh, basically stay tuned. Absolutely. Well, we'll be putting those up as soon as we know them. Again, Ellis Ross, first contender for the BC leadership race. It's been great to have you on the program. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. New to our After 9 Friday morning edition, that is the Ram and Stag Show, the Friday panel with Nathan Gita coming up in a moment. Once upon a time, a man called Dave went camping in the woods. One night, a very big and very hungry grizzly bear came across Dave's little tent. What? A bear? Outside? Luckily, Dave knew from a book he read with his son never to keep his food in the tent, but outside it, high up on a tree. No! I never read that! Pity. The end. Easy, dude. Come on. You see, if you read more, you'll learn more. For more information, go to familyliteracyday.ca. Check out the Two Rivers Gallery podcast, Learn From Sharing, a series of voices on diversity. The latest edition features the late David Clement Charles and his granddaughter Amanda Cup, offering a glimpse into David's life, drawing on knowledge derived from living on the land and within his community. It also touches on the changing landscape and the importance of keeping our land healthy for our children. Caring for the land and each other, the latest Learn From Sharing podcast, available online at tworiversgallery.ca. Join the Method Dance Society for free online workshops on contemporary movement and dance. Hosted by Method Dance Society, a half dozen guest instructors will help you develop your dance skills. Workshops run Saturday afternoons at 3.30 through May 8th. Register for one or all the sessions at methoddance.ca. Free online workshops in contemporary movement and dance from Method Dance Society. Saturday afternoons at 3.30 through May 8th. The spring season for the Prince George Symphony Orchestra's 50th anniversary is online. There are still two concerts remaining, a String Beans Kinder Concert on Sunday, March 7th, and Baroque Hits on March 13th. Both will be offered online. Tickets for each show are $20 per household, available at pgso.com by phoning 250-562-0800 or dropping by the office at Studio 2880, Monday to Friday between 9 and 4.30. Enjoy the new virtual spring season of your Prince George Symphony Orchestra at pgso.com. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. 
Yes, good morning. I'm Nathan Gita, your host, and I'm joined by Eric Allen, Herb Martin, and Art Betke. We are the panel that we have here on Fridays, and we're going to start with a discussion about Canadian procurement. It's a perennial problem in this country. Our military procurement strategies uh, go a little sideways often. Uh, for first reactions to the fact that maybe we should just buy our ships from somewhere else, we'll go to Herb Martin. Herb. Well, you know, the biggest problem we've had um, um, in this country is that uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, our industry controlled by oligarchs. You look at the Irvings and the Maritimes, um, they, um, they they basically can control the Maritimes, a lot of the industry there, and uh, we're not getting, a, you know, any kind of competition uh, for, um, well, there's no price competition. So um, I think one thing we have to start looking at is somehow um, inducing some sort of price competition, either by uh, opening up these uh, these contracts um, uh, to international competition, or uh, perhaps limiting the scope of them. Uh, but we're just we're just sitting ducks, really. Art, uh, sitting ducks, that's the way it seems like our Navy is sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, God bless the people actually serving in it, but unfortunately the infrastructure itself is not usually uh, moving very fast or it's in dry dock. Uh, what Are we still taking this seriously or do we just expect this every year? I think it's just the way it is right now. Uh, way back at the end of the Second World War, uh, we had the third biggest Navy in the world. And... Uh, uh, we were building ships, and we were building them fast. Uh, nowadays, uh, of course, it's they're a lot more complex and a lot more to it. But the biggest problem seems to be the government itself. They just dither and dally, and they uh, don't seem to want to spend money on military procurements. Remember those uh, used subs we bought from Britain many years ago? And uh, it took something like four years for them to actually get around to signing the checks. So, you know, once they had uh, made the agreement to buy them, the British stopped maintaining them, and then they sat for four years and deteriorated, and uh, so then they were in pretty bad shape when we finally took them. It's just, the, the, the government has been like that for a long time now, and how can a shipyard survive? How, how can a business survive if you're depending on that kind of a... a uh, 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 something like that for your income. So, uh, you know, they, they just, they, they, they can't keep up themselves and uh, they can't modernize. Uh, we, we can't really make a, a, a proper purchase like that. We, if, like Herb says, if we put it up for bid, our Canadian firms won't get them, that's for sure, because we just can't uh, compete. Eric, uh, we talk a lot about government largesse on this panel. It's actually kind of the underlying theme of, of most of our discussions, but this is no different. Once again, uh, it looks like uh, Canada's ships are going into the gajillions of dollars. What 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 have we done wrong here? Well, we you know we dropped the ball uh, quite quite a while after the Second World War, but you know I think in all we need to say it what we've done is we rested on our laurels and we let the United States look after our uh, military needs and basically our defense. And so why spend the bucks if we don't have to? I think that's the attitude that the government has to some degree. We used to be pretty proud of, uh, of uh, and still are, of our armed forces, but the equipment, 
And what we're trying to do with it is, is a, a national disgrace, and nobody wants to talk about it. Those submarines, I think it was a couple of years ago, they, they didn't even leave dock for over a year. And they're constantly being repaired, and half the time they don't even know if they'll float. It's a bloody national disaster. And this huge uh, budget that's coming out now for uh, building frigates and whatever else they need for the, the Navy, I mean, we have to get back to building stuff for Canadians, by Canadians, with Canadian dollars. And I think I agree to some degree with Herb that these oligarchs and these companies, that, you know, and international trade and trade rules and regulations, it's very difficult to get back to that uh, model. But that's the model that got us to where we are. This model that we're going into now is going gonna, is gonna to be very detrimental to Canada over the long term. We have to stop that. Like, I think everything that's being built in Prince Rupert becomes being built by foreign countries and foreign cement and it's just what the hell do we do uh, you know we're going to be just sitting back watching the, the show I guess Herb I mean this is an ongoing discussion I, it doesn't matter it seems what what we're talking about the jets especially but also the ships and of course much to our chagrin and to our shame probably you know we, the last the last supply ship got dragged back to port by our American allies because it you know it ran into trouble out there I think near Hawaii it, it, what are we doing wrong why can't we why can't we seem to put this together we have engineers we built the Canada arm yeah, I mean, actually, but, uh, you know, running a Navy is um, is quite a different uh, kettle of fish altogether. Uh, you know, we're a small country. We've got a huge coastline. Uh, after World War Two, we had the world's, what, third largest Navy, was it? But, you know, that was disbanded fairly quickly because um, that's pretty costly to maintain. So we've got to choose our, our opportunities um, carefully and, and go after them. Um, we can't be all things to all people, and uh, especially not with uh, 40 million people or less. So we, we really have to target our opportunities and um, and decide where we're going to excel, because otherwise we'll just be uh, a jack-of-all-trades and master of none. Art, I mean, we seem to even lack the capability maybe to arrive on our own shores, especially if they're far-flung, say, in our Arctic. And, and uh, there was always that talk of getting the icebreakers underway. Uh, they're still, I believe, under construction. I don't think any of them have been launched yet. What What do we need to do differently? I think there needs to be a big uh, attitude change in government. Uh, it almost seems to be uh, anti-military. I mean, they're, they're happy to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on other things, but when it comes to the military, they're reluctant to spend, and uh, they try to avoid it. And when they can't avoid it, they don't do it right, and they end up spending more in, than they should have in the first place. So that whole attitude has to change, and I can't see that happening anytime soon. Eric, any uh, last uh, last encouragements for what we need to do differently when it comes to military procurement? Yeah, we have to we have to try to get back to some. I mean, the uh, fact that it costs a lot of money is just a red herring. And governments, if they're really good at anything, it's at wasting money, so they can waste less and build more. You know, the fact that we've got uh, and I and I don't knock the Inuit or anybody in the Northwest Territories or the Arctic for defending our borders. But that's what they are. They're the Rangers. There's about 60 of them. They're all around 60, 65 years old. They have 303 Lee Enfield rifles. And that's a lot of ways, that's their first line of defense up there. 
and it's actually just to show that we actually do own the Arctic as we think we do. That's not good enough. We have to get back to being, you know, one of the top countries in the top ten in the world or something, and we're going to have to spend some money to do it. Spending money, uh, you know, that promotes jobs. We can we can have uh, thousands and thousands of jobs uh, building this stuff in Canada, but somebody says, well, you can get it done in Korea or Japan or uh, China cheaper. So, But when they do it cheaper over there, who keeps the profits? We don't get it. The companies that are building it get it. So it's time to just stop that kind of BS and get back to the, the facts. And I agree, it was an embarrassment when the Americans had to tow one of those ships off. It's just beyond comprehension. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break right there. We'll be right back. Check out the Two Rivers Gallery podcast, Learn From Sharing, a series of voices on diversity. The latest edition features the late David Clements Charles and his granddaughter Amanda Cup, offering a glimpse into David's life, drawing on knowledge derived from living on the land and within his community. It also touches on the changing landscapes and the importance of keeping our land healthy for our children. Caring for the land and each other, the latest Learn From Sharing podcast, available online at tworiversgallery.com. Two Rivers Gallery is excited to present a new exhibition featuring work by Prince George-based artist Audrey McKinnon. I Miss Your Faces is an exhibition installation hybrid which considers the importance of human connection, especially during a global pandemic. Check out I Miss Your Faces by Audrey McKinnon through March 14th at the Two Rivers Gallery, open Tuesday through Thursday, 9 to 5. Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Volunteer Burnaby has online training for Volunteer Resources Administration. The four courses available are preparing your organization to involve volunteers, the Volunteer Cycle 1, the Volunteer Cycle 2, and the professional practice of Volunteer Administration. Complete all four courses and you'll receive a refund of 10% of the total cost. Full details are available through the training link at volunteerburnaby.ca. Volunteer Resources Administration online training, available now through volunteerburnaby.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy today with a 60% chance of flurries. Wind from the southwest at 30 gusting to 50 and a high of zero. Clearing tonight, wind from the northwest at 20 gusting to 40, becoming light near midnight, a low of minus 12 with a wind chill to minus 15. Cloudy on Saturday with snow beginning late in the afternoon. Wind from the south at 30 gusting to 50 near noon and a high of zero. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, good morning. We're back with the panel. We're going to talk a little bit about things a bit closer to home here in BC. Obviously, we're getting near a year uh, into the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, there's a lot of questions when it comes to leadership and that sort of thing. We'll talk a little bit first about the pandemic itself and how that's been developing and maybe pivot a little bit later into the BC leadership race for the BC Liberal Party. Herb, uh, the pandemic's almost a year on now. Um, how would you assess the leadership of those who have uh, participated in it so far? Uh, well, in BC, I guess uh, we've we've done I guess all right. It's not uh, it's not stellar. There's been some mistakes along the way, but um, if you look at the mortality rate uh, as compared to different states in the U.S., uh, we're doing quite well. Uh, we're at uh, one eighth the mortality rate of uh, New York. We're about one seventh that of uh, South Dakota. So, you know, there's um, uh, we, we've done some things right and. Uh, Look, there's, but there has been mistakes, and no one's perfect. And um, I think there's been a lot of uh, on-the-job training, 
Um, I guess uh, give it a typical Canadian uh, approval and saying, you know, it's it's, uh, not bad, but um, could have been better. (laughs) Typical Canadian approval. Uh, You know, Art, I I think that something that people kind of almost almost forgot about already is that we did hold a provincial election in the middle of it. It, Was that a referendum on how the government was handling it? Because if it was, they they got a pass, they got a majority. No, it had nothing to do with the pandemic. Uh, it was just uh, a referendum on how they've done since uh, being uh, or appointed to, into office after the Liberals were voted out. Um, and and you know he uh, Horgan and his people did uh, fairly well. So uh, with, with everything, not not just the pandemic, uh, with, but with everything in in the economy and government spending and everything else we had uh, a, a surplus budget uh, and uh, so people were quite happy with them and uh, so that's why they voted that way uh, i don't see it was a referendum on the pandemic at all i think the pandemic is just following uh, typical patterns and uh, it's coming down now it'll be quite low in the summer and we just might have another increase in the fall if uh, the pattern uh, follows uh, true Eric, uh, I was on the radio earlier with Ellis Ross about, you know, what it means to be a leader and what it means to uh, help people in all parts of BC. With the pandemic, without the pandemic, um, do you see that leadership happening on either side of the aisle in Victoria these days? No. No, I don't. And uh, <clears throat> like I'm totally, not that I ever was very happy with the NDU, but I'm less happy with them now. Horgan came in there with some things that he was going to do and never did. So that doesn't say much for his leadership. And, uh, you know, the uh, Wilkinson, he just bailed. As, like, I don't know why he got in there in the first place, but uh, he just bailed after the election. And now, got, you know, I think Kevin Falcon and Camelops is trying to get back in there. He was really upset when Christie beat him out. So he's a... Uh, he's, probably going to be the front runner here fairly quickly and uh mike morris here locally i've seen something somewhere that he's speaking about maybe running for it and then this chap you had on today but but these aren't what you would call you know, leaders like in the old days like wc wac ben ender uh Gilardi or somebody that has you know some of our leaders like they have to have character and charisma you know you can't just put a white board on a wall and paint it white and expect or pretend that you've done something we need somebody that's going to stand out there and tell it the way it is and do it and i don't see that happening i see people hiding behind trees hoping nobody notices them pick up their check and go home that's what's happening with bc politics i haven't heard in the last god knows how many years any any politician on his own volition stand up and say this is not right this is what we were voted and elected for and this is what we should be doing you hear nothing and you hear nothing from city hall or the councillors other than when you get an issue and they make a few noises and then that's the end of it everything settles down we need leaders real leaders and uh, we don't have them right now Herb, to that point, what do you think the next leader of the BC Liberals is going to have to think about? We're, we're into the leadership race now. It's very early, yes, but what what are some of the things they're going to have to think about as they start marching towards, uh, hopefully, the premiership? Well, uh, 
this whole post-COVID uh, uh, economy is going to pose a lot of challenges, and there's going to have to be some new solutions. Uh, uh, from my point of view, the PC Liberals have always been hand-in-hand with the uh, corporate elite here in BC. And one thing we've seen in, in the pandemic is the, um, the elite have done very, very well. So somehow I think the BC Liberals are going to have to start coming up with some, um, some uh, tough questions for themselves about how they want to be seen uh, being aligned with, with, um, uh, with industry leaders. Uh, they're going to have to uh, start looking at um, uh, higher rates of corporate taxation, uh, perhaps um, opening up the economy. Uh, we've got to uh, start looking for some some new ideas. Uh, the old ones didn't work well for the Liberals, and they and it won't work for them in the next election. We're going to take a quick break right there and come right back. Prince George Crime Stoppers is now Northern BC Crime Stoppers. Coming off another record year, your local Crime Stoppers organization is geared up to receive tips from across Northern BC anonymously, 24-7, 365 days a year. Call 1-800-222-TIPS or make your submission online at pgcrimestoppers.bc.ca. Don't miss the next Community Shredded event Saturday, April 24th at the PGSS parking lot to dispose of personal documents safely and securely with Northern BC Crime Stoppers. Two Rivers Gallery is excited to present a group exhibition from 11 BC-based artists. The tip of the iceberg addresses climate change from various points of view in a variety of mediums, including sculpture, prints, installation, and sound art. From freshwater security to the impacts of consumerism on our planet, the tip of the iceberg delves deeper into our warming planet. The tip of the iceberg on through April 4th at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Friendly phone calls are an important part of daily life for seniors living alone. The Prince George Council of Seniors Friendly Phone Calls program helps keep those isolated individuals active and connected to our community. If you're a senior looking for someone to talk to or a volunteer willing to make a few calls for a couple of hours each week, get involved. Call the Council of Seniors at 250-564-5888 or stop by the office at the corner of 7th and Victoria. Looking for something to excel at? Start with CNC's Basic Training Excel Bootcamp and work your way up. In today's working world, an understanding of Excel is a requirement for nearly all professionals from administrators to project managers. CNC's new online course is instructor-led over two evenings. The registration deadline is April 7th for the next boot camp, which will take place April 14th and 15th. For full details, contact the college or go online to cnc.bc.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, good morning. We're back with the panel. And, of course, as we always conclude, we're coming home. Uh, there's always something going on with City Hall. There's always <laughs> there's always something happening when it comes to spending. And who knows what else. We'll start with Art. Art, what's on your radar when it comes to the city and what's happening locally? Oh, they... What I'm seeing is uh, they still don't seem to be taking this fiscal situation seriously. Um, if, so would they, they approve uh, spending measures without uh, really thinking about them? They, they're not really getting into any restraint. They, I don't, it's like they don't realize what's happening with their finances or think somehow they're going to get bailed out. Um, I mean, with this pool, the... Um, they canceled or, or they shut down permanently the old Four Seasons pool, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. So that'll save them a little bit of money. But 
then they they seem to be spending more money on a ninja obstacle course on the new pool like it's it's like they just don't get it what will that cost us they should be cutting spending not increasing it just cutting overall the shutting down the four seasons is just a temporary savings it's not a, a permanent uh, cut to spending so they've they've got to tighten the belt somehow Eric, I know you're looking forward to the new Ninja Obstacle course uh, and uh, using it as often as possible. Um, you'll be one of the three people at the pool, at least if your own guesstimates are correct when it comes to who's using it. What what else is on your radar? Uh, well, the the whole thing I agree with Art on now, and uh, the whole thing with the, uh, or maybe uh, Herb to the, uh, they don't seem to be taking this thing as serious as it should. They're just you know, the the parkade thing has kind of settled down, and now I think they're under the impression that, you know, well, we got away with that one. Things have settled down, so now we'll carry on up to Kyber. But, uh, <clears throat> no, I, I think the, the the time has come to stop the spending, stop the taxing, stop coming up with these goofy ideas that you have to build all this stuff all the time. I was talking to somebody the other day. We have six hockey rinks in Prince George. Six. I don't. I'm not on top of the file all the time. But is there any other city in Prince George or the province that has six skating rinks? I sincerely doubt it. <clears throat> we could have kept that old pool going for another five years or something, and then you know looked at the best location and built it. So the real question is why the rush? Why the big hurry? Why are we spending seven million dollars to tear down a hotel that could have been used for some reason? or at the very least, left alone so we got the tax dollars, knock it down, throw it in the dump, move a pool over there. So $10 million later, we've got a facility there, but now we've lost this tax uh, from the hotel for the next, well, we just lost it. It's gone. And and I can give you hundreds of instances where we've teared down buildings and lost the tax and, and had a government building go in there or something, or the Northern Sports Center cost us $300,000 a year for people to go up there and walk and play uh, soccer. And then we shut down the Civic Center because we, <clears throat> we're we not using the basketball courts. We, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It's just unbelievable. And I don't think anybody is really having a hard look at spending. You know, Herb, I mean, I think the reason that we have so many hockey rinks is that we're just we're getting ready for when we bring our own NHL team here uh, to Prince George. Uh, we're we're going to we're going to found one. It's going to be we're going to be ahead of Saskatchewan. We're going to get an NHL team before uh, before they do. What do you think? <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, I think one thing that the, the city could do is uh, start looking at maybe creating some outdoor uh, uh, hockey rinks. Uh, more out- outdoor hockey rinks, and perhaps some with uh, ice making uh, capability. Uh, th- this is, uh, you know, once you start putting them into uh, arenas, uh, it's very high cost. And um, you know, we I think we could do with more uh, neighborhood uh, uh, skating rinks. And there's there's some areas of the city, especially uh, uh, near the downtown, the so-called ghetto, that I think would really benefit from um, from that. Uh, there's a real lack of uh, uh, recreation opportunities for kids. In areas like that, and uh, that's, that's something where the where the city could spend some money. Uh, the one the one thing they are doing they they look they they've introduced some whistleblower legislation. Um, uh, hopefully, that'll allow uh, employees to be um, a little more forthcoming. Uh, they should also perhaps put into place um, 
some sort of money saving uh, a tip jar or something where you know city employees could uh, uh, suggest ways to save money and um, and be rewarded for it. I think that that might be uh, might it might actually turn some dividends. Yeah, no, I mean, I I enjoy making suggestions to my boss as well. Um, I don't always get a Tim Hortons gift card for it, though. I usually get uh, shouted out of the room. Um, Art, it's, uh, I mean, these aren't terrible ideas. It's just... uh, is it a cultural thing? Are any of the are any of these symptoms going to be changed until until the culture changes downtown? Uh, is that who's that directed at? That, sorry, that's directed at Art. Oh, uh, boy, I don't know how that's going to change downtown. Uh, you know, it's a mindset, and uh, I don't think you can change that mindset you, unless you vote those people out and get other people in and. How long will they last before their mindset changes too? Um, but you know, like, uh, how, wh- where are all these properties around town? Uh, somebody has suggested a while ago that we could, uh, the city could actually get a big boost in revenues by selling off a lot of these properties that they own. Uh, uh, an example: What are they doing with the old fire hall? I mean, that would be a, a nice facility for the farmers market or something, but. What are they going to do there? Are they going to tear that down and build something else too? Are there plans about? Well, what's going on? Uh, let us know, please. Eric, uh, I mean, it's it, we could use it for uh, a farmers market. Um, there's all sorts of vacant lots and property around here. Uh, what what do you think we need to do with it? Well, I'll tell you one thing: the, the decision what's going to happen to it's been made a long time ago, and and what's going on downtown. They know what's going on there. You don't just arbitrarily tear, stay out, tear down one swimming pool and move it across the street for no reason. You know, <clears throat> it could have been built on College Heights or anywhere. So there's a, there's a master plan there that we're not uh, privy to. But I did, and I think it was Wells or somebody made reference in some of the correspondence that that, that building will be uh, demolished. And it'll end up in the dump. That's where it'll end up. Along with the swimming pool, it'll end up in the landfill, along with Days Inn, along with the Prince George Hotel, and everything else that the city touches ends up in the landfill. And then they turn around and raise our taxes <clears throat> because it's too expensive to run the landfill. It's just unbelievable. There is no planning here. And, and uh, this whistleblower thing, just as an aside, if you've got good management, you don't need whistleblowers. You know, a good manager knows what's going on and can take care of some of this stuff. Again, these managers we got, they're hiding behind telephone poles. Nobody's getting out there going to get uh, in the firing line, and uh, it's not good. You know, we're paying huge dollars, like city manager, $265,000 a year. It's unbelievable. I look back at some of the old city managers. Uh, Paul was a city manager for 17 years. And prior to him, it was uh, Chester Jeffries. I'm not sure how long Chester was there. It was probably 15 years. And then we get to Derek Bates. It drops down to six years. We get interim with uh, Soltis for a little while. Then we get Beth James, 20 months. And then we get uh, Soltis as a manager. She's gone within three years. And now we don't have a manager. No wonder we're having problems. We've had four or five managers in eight, nine years, where one used to last us for at least 15 years. The whole thing has to be shook up. 
I think that's actually a really good point, Eric. Um, and we'll kind of go along in a firing firing line here a little bit with uh, with the panel as we get to the closing here. Uh, everybody will get a chance to weigh into this. It, what what's the one thing in the culture at City Hall that needs to change, Herb? Uh, the idea that um, that the city can actually uh, plan and uh, uh, change the nature of the downtown. They, the, the city should be there to uh, aid and provide services for the town, not to uh, transform it. Art. They have to get out of the idea that uh, they have unlimited amounts of money to spend on all kinds of pet pro- projects and the kind of transformation that Herb was talking about. Just need to change their mindset into basically miserly restraint that's what we have to do going forward eric i'll give you the last word here well i got to get responsible and have people in the different departments that have responsibilities to make sure that they're using them we had a good downtown back in the old days before everybody moved out to parkwood and then further out and uh, i was looking at some old pictures the other day and it was a great downtown i remember when i was a kid of course we could have it but it's going to take some uh, some leadership, and people are going to have to do something besides spending money. The city spends $168 million a year, every year. Every penny that comes in, they spend it, and then they borrow more money. How long? This has been going on for 10 or 15 years. That's got to stop. It certainly does. Well, that was the panel we have on Friday. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tune in again next week for more thoughts on After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFIS-FM, proudly partnered with local community groups like the Prince George Symphony Orchestra.